I'm Andrew Chappelle, and this is a controversial podcast, one that's recorded on the lands of the oldest continuing cultures on Earth. SBS acknowledge the traditional custodians of country and their connections and continuous care for the skies, lands, and waterways throughout Australia. Accessible, sustainable, and truly remarkable, Qatar's compact and connected hosting plan ensures a FIFA World Cup like no other. It was always a controversial choice for critics who spent years saying the World Cup should have never been awarded to a conservative country smaller than Greater Sydney. But whether you like it or not, the greatest show on earth is taking place in Qatar for the first time in the Middle East. On this podcast, we'll tackle issues off the field that people can't stop talking about and others you may not be across. Guardianship and gay rights, politics and patriarchy, and the power of football. Unlike many other shows, we'll actually hear from Qataris and others with firsthand experience in these issues. I can almost guarantee you haven't heard some of these perspectives before. I lived there for more than a decade, and a lot of this is still new to me. And hopefully, by the end of it, we're all a bit more informed about this historic opportunity for the people of the region and those hoping it'll change their lives for the better. And we can all enjoy a moment when the world comes together every four years. But first, let's keep it light, shall we, and start with the basics. A few personal tips for those of you who may be traveling there for the first time. Here are your ABCs of Qatar, or QBCs. These are personal suggestions and are in no way endorsed by SBS. Always consult local rules and regulations. A is for alcohol. Yes, there's plenty available. Stop freaking out. It'll probably cost you around $20 Australian for a pint of beer. B is for boats. Don't leave Doha without getting on one and feeling the sea breeze on your face. Bit of planning. You can go over to Sefalia Island on a traditional dhow or other boat. Go fishing, whatever you want. C is for cash. Most places should accept contactless payments, so you don't need to take out a bunch of cash and convert it before getting on the plane. And there are ATMs everywhere, but it's good to have some local cash for private taxis or food stalls. C is also for culture and when you are asked to respect it. That doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything. We will hear plenty of disagreement in this podcast, but it's like being asked to take your shoes off before entering someone's house. D is for dress code. Look, in some public places, you can't wear shorts or show knees. And on other beaches, you may see people in budgie smugglers and bikinis. Just ask around and be flexible. E is for Etteraz, the COVID app. You won't need to worry about it anymore unless going into hospitals. F is for don't give the finger. People there seem to be way more offended by it than in other countries. G is for Tinder or other dating app. You may need a VPN. Police are known to use these platforms too, looking for people engaged in sex work or buying drugs. H is for hotels where most bars are located outside the official FIFA events. I is for the Inland Sea. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site where large sand dunes fill into the sea. There's nothing like it anywhere else in the world. J is for the Binjel Mood House, also known as the Slavery Museum. It's on the site of a former slave merchant's house and tells the story of laborers brought to the Gulf to die for pearls, harvest dates, and work in households, and the work that remains to root out modern-day slavery, a topic we will certainly get to later in the series. K is for Kadak, or Indian tea with cardamom that is like crack, basically. 
L is Levantine, Levantine food in particular, Lebanese and Syrian. Go eat all of it. If you haven't tried, it'll change your life. M is for museums. You should try to go to the Museum of Islamic Art, the National Museum, and my personal favorite, Mataf, which is the Modern Art Museum. N is for Nobu. The world's largest is in Doha, if you're into that kind of thing. O is for Oud, which is known as the scent from heaven. You'll smell plenty of locals wearing it. The oil comes from agarwood trees in Southeast Asia, and it's more expensive than gold. P is for privacy laws. You can't photograph people without their permission or slander them online. P is also for privilege. You're visiting a conservative country that has done a lot to accommodate you and make sure that you're safe and having fun, going beyond the wishes of the super conservative voices in their own society. So think twice about forcing your values on them. Q is for Qatar. Also officially, just to be clear, internationally, and I guess it's because maybe the British people like moved over to our country, you know, very early on. Yes, you can also say Qatar. And that's why when you go on to Qatar Airways, they go and say Qatar Airways. Qatar Airways. Qatar Airways. Qatar. So everybody says different things. So we've heard now Qatar, Gutter, Qatar, Qatar, Qatar. What else do we hear? Qatar. Qatar. What is that? That's like an Australian. Australian go to Qatar. <laughs> R is for roads. Driving there is different. It's like, it's horrendous. Just remember to always buckle up. S is for souk wakif. Obviously, go late at night and chill by yourself or take some friends. And what do people do there? They people watch. S is for safety. Qatar is the safest country in the world, consistently ranked so year by year. Now, that's partially because criminals get deported so easily. So don't hit anyone or steal anything. And I'm talking to you klepto ladies at brunch out there. You know who you are. Tips. Always tip the workers at petrol stations. Tip the food delivery drivers and the hotel wait staff. U is for the universities in Education City. Qatar hosts Eight universities there, including Georgetown, Cornell, Texas A&M, and Northwestern. V is for violence. Hooligans out there, there's low tolerance for it. WhatsApp. WhatsApp calls have been blocked for years. So get a VPN. Everyone seems to have one. X is for the x-rays. You can get used to putting your stuff through screening machines to enter pretty much every hotel and other public venues. Y is for yalla. Used all the time for let's go. Like, yalla, let's go to Zakrete Beach. That's where you can go kite surfing. Great. Now you know your QVCs. Hi, my name is Ala Fustel, and I'm a kite surfer from Qatar. We're all very excited to be hosting the World Cup. It's been something that the country has been waiting for for a very long time. Everyone that lives in Qatar can't wait. And I think even the GCC countries, surrounding countries from Saudi to Bahrain to Emirates, everybody, we're going to have so many visitors. The peak of uh, spectators to be around the first two weeks. So around like 700,000 people, a total of 1.8 million, almost are going to be in the country. So it'll be very exciting. I'm really pumped. Uh, I'm going to see one match, of course, not more than that, because uh, my wife will be delivering soon. We're expecting a baby boy, second one. So that comes with responsibilities, of course. So uh, yeah, so that's why I'm not watching more than one, but I'll be watching from the television, of course. Uh, but um, I can't wait to see all the matches. I'm going to see as much as I can. But many people are wondering, is it too small to host the World Cup? You know, Qatar had to do a lot more than develop its tourism industry and build a few stadiums or highways. They've spent $220 billion over the last 12 years in the lead up to the tournament. But it wasn't for the tournament. It was to build a country. And it's the most compact FIFA World Cup since the first one in 1930. With all the fans in one place, able to see more than one match per day. I'm sure it'll be a lot of fun and a logistical nightmare. 
Uh, my name's Michael Edgley. I'm a director of GGA Destination. People in the football community might know us as the Green and Gold Army, so we've been taking large groups of Australian fans to FIFA World Cups on the men's and the women's edition since 2001. Some of my friends think I have the perfect job in the world, uh, going to football matches, football events all over the world, but really excited to talk about the World Cup in Qatar. We've been building up to the World Cup. There's obviously been some incredibly significant um, global impacts on tourism and travel, uh, in particular the pandemic and the recovery of the airline industry um, airline prices are sort of running at 40, 45% higher than they were pre-pandemic. So I actually thought the demand for Australians to attend this World Cup was going to be lower. For those two reasons, primarily, uh, hesitancy to travel again after the pandemic. However, I did um, see the statistics of the Hayek card recently and um, uh, there was about 7,500 Australians went to the Russian World Cup in 2018 um, and uh, there's about 8,000 Australians that have applied for a hire card. It's the digital fan ID. It's, it's a big part of FIFA's, FIFA's security protocols. Uh, it allows people, FIFA, to um, uh, exclude. They've got a very long list of um, people that they don't want at the event who've um, misbehaved at different events previously. So it's part of that process. It's obviously a security apparatus for the local authorities as well. So the hire card allows... Um, allows fans, it, it acts as your visa to enter Qatar during between the 1st of November and the end of December. Um, it's the only way that you can enter Qatar other than being a resident or, or a, a, golf, uh, a golf country resident. Um, yeah, so it's basically your visa to get, it, get into Qatar, but it's been uh, digitised uh, and it allows the security authorities to have a, uh, have a good control on who's entering Qatar for the event. Uh, during the group phase, uh, when all 32 teams in Doha, uh, the only way that you will be able to enter Doha is if you have a match ticket and a haircut. Uh, how do you think this particular edition will stand out? Well, it's unique. I think that's the first uh, first uh, acknowledgement to make. It's extremely unique. It's a massive challenge. Thirty-two stakeholders of thirty-two football federations in the one city, from sponsors, VIPs, to fans, to players, to players' families. You know, it's a, it's a Herculean task. It's going to stretch the infrastructure of the city to its limit. I mean, you know, people are talking about metro, the capacity of the metro. People are talking about the road system. Obviously, there's a lot of closures to accommodate the FIFA fan sites and so forth too. So there's a lot of um, nervousness about it all. But my biggest worry is that, um, you know, being a, a tour operator for fans who come away to World Cups to have a holiday, I'm just worried about the casual dining capacity of the country to meet the demand of 1.2 million people, extra people, mm. on top of its own populace during the World Cup. The ability to walk down Katara Beach and stop and have a coffee and a, and a light meal, you know, those types of things. Um, we're experiencing that everybody's wanting prepaid bookings in advance for meals. So that, that, that I think the spontaneity of this World Cup will be terrific at fan sites, festival sites, you know, that the government has invested an enormous amount in uh, entertainment activations in and around the games. I think the spontaneity will be great. But in terms of uh, a big part of when you travel to World Cup is to immerse yourself in the local culture. So, you know, I'm sure you being a, a person who spent a lot of time in Doha will probably agree with me. You know, Sukhwa Kif will be very busy. Um, yeah. <laughs> they'll probably need to regulate the amount of people that can enter at any one time. So I, I think the spontaneity of – I think that's compromised by having 32 teams – you know, having so many people in the one city, I think we've got to acknowledge that it's a huge task and um, there'll be delays. You know, I've, I've seen 
crowd infrastructure uh, barriers being uh, constructed outside metro stations. So they're obviously looking to regulate the flow of people into the metro as well. So, yeah, it, it's 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 going to be busy, no doubt about it. The Australians who are travelling on the tour, I'm sure you have some frequent conversations about what people are expecting. Or- well, I think the first one is I'm, I'm not coming because I can't get a beer. <laughs> and I must uh, I must dispel, dispel that rumour. So there is um, many outlets, as you would know, yeah. there are many outlets in Qatar that serve alcohol, and uh, you'll be able to find a, a suitable venue to enjoy a drink or two. Um, there'll be alcohol outside the stadiums before and after the games. There'll be alcohol with the people outside. So um, albeit it's a traditional Islamic country that has uh, rules the rules and laws that are very different to Australia. Alcohol consumption is one of those. Um, yeah, it, most of the people that we talk to are very respectful of, look, we're going to somebody else's nation. We're a guest in that nation. They have laws. Alcohol is not consumed like it is in Australia. We understand that. But there's still places to uh, enjoy a, a drink with friends. It just won't be as readily available as it would be at home or uh, other World Cups before. But I, I think... Um, this is a very historic and unique World Cup. You know, we, we shouldn't lose sight in all of the um, the dialogue and discussion around um, Qatar's worthiness to host the event, whether the city's too small, a controversial circumstance it was awarded. It is the first World Cup ever in an Arabic nation. That is very significant. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Tunisia, Qatar all participating in this World Cup. It'll have a very big Arab, Arab flavour and feel. I think that will be the lasting, lasting take out of all of the fans from around the world who um, enjoy the World Cup here. Uh, and I think that's a very significant achievement by FIFA, regardless of controversies. Uh, I think we need to acknowledge that this is uh, very much um, a, a, the biggest event ever to be hosted in the Arab world. It's, it's massive for them. We're all very excited about uh, Australia's fifth qualification uh, in a row. It's a, a, an amazing achievement and um, we... We get to see them again. Um, Andrew, I grew up in a time when <laughs> when uh, we weren't qualifying for World Cup. So I, I, I know the hard times and the pain of being a football fan of missing out on World Cup. So it's just fantastic that we've qualified. Um, that's what it's about. I think the football will be amazing. Um, we're just looking forward to hopefully a, fingers crossed, <laughs> fingers crossed, a good result in the first game and we can attack the last two games and see if we can get out of the group. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Go Socceroos. Qatar is a very small country, right? And when it first announced that it won the World Cup, I was really worried about that because I thought, what if someone kicks the ball really hard, then somebody's going to have to go and get it from Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Hi, it's wonderful to be on this podcast with Andrew Chappelle from SBS. My name is Carl Sharrow. And I'm an architect by day, satirist by night. I've dabbled in comedy and predominantly I, my material can be seen on Twitter at Carl Remarks. He's also author of the book, And Then God Created the Middle East and Said, Let There Be Breaking News. Carl, when you are performing, when you're speaking to people who are completely unfamiliar with the region, where do you begin? That's a very good opening question. So I think um, it's kind of relevant to the comedy work that I do and the satire work that I do is kind of, I see myself as a, a 
cultural translator between, you know, East and West, the Middle East and Europe. Uh, as I say, you know, the, the, the Rachel and Ross of geopolitics and history. And it's quite funny. What I find quite funny about this is probably, you know, the Middle East and Europe or the Middle East and the West are the regions that are most historically connected to each other and yet they are the ones with most misunderstanding and the way that I like to begin um, to explain what the Arab world and the Middle East are to a Western audience is to kind of a give a glimpse into the huge diversity of uh, this world, which could be cultural, linguistic, uh, religious, and includes quite a wide variety of falafel recipes. <laughs> and I think that's kind of uh, quite important for me to understand that um, there's a kind of overriding linguistic uh, tie within that region of the world because, you know, almost everyone can speak Arabic. But besides that, there's a huge amount of diversity uh, where you talk about which country you talk about can uh, vary quite a lot. So if you're talking about a country in the Gulf versus a country in Northern Africa, where even between, you know, Tunisia and Morocco, there are neighboring countries, there are huge differences. And I, I think my starting point is to explain the complexity and diversity within that world. And then from there on, I very quickly go on to uh, play on Western guilt because I think that's very good uh, material for comedy. So give us a sense of the topics that you like to broach in your routines and in your posts. So, I mean, um, I started off kind of trying to make fun of not every journalist or pundit writing about the Middle East and the Western press, but the kind of there's a um, particular uh, species of we call them parachute journalists that you know one day they'll pop up in the Middle East the next day they're somewhere else and they sort of take it upon themselves to explain the huge complexity of the region in 30 seconds right and they tend to kind of dwell on a lot of stereotypes and always kind of harking back to history and there are quite few of those the late Robert Fisk was one of my early targets and it's kind of kind of parodying that style of comedy, uh, sorry, of journalism by <laughs> kind of spoofing, satirizing it, and in the process trying to share the more kind of the complexity of um, what the Middle East, Middle Eastern societies, and Middle East uh, countries are about. Uh, then invariably, I talk a lot about food. I'm obsessed with food, and uh, that could take you know any form of. Um, making digs, let's say, uh, at, at Western culture. So, for example, I always say this thing, you always read when you're, when you're reading about Western, uh, you know, um, writers that, or poets, you know, having a starving, that cliche of the starving poet. And I'm like, you know, it's, 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 there's no point being a starving, you know, artist in a, in countries that have terrible food, right? It's it's if you go to Arab countries, that's that's you're missing out on the really good good food. Whereas if you're doing it in Northern Europe where the food is terrible, then then actually you're doing yourself a favor by being a starving a starving artist. So these are the kind of um, um, com complexities that I tried to bring into my comedy about uh, the Middle East and its relationship to the West. 
I would say there's about 22 different Arab senses of humor, one for each country in the Arab League. And actually that gets multiplied because in different regions, they might have different senses of humor. Um, and you, in fact, you pick it up, for example, um, the Egyptian sense of humor is quite light, it's quite refreshing, they're quite witty, they're very good at uh, word play, whereas if you go to a country like Iraq, it's very bleak, dark humor for, for obvious reasons. I mean, it's one of the countries that have had, uh, you know, very bleak uh, periods of history, particularly recent history. And I think that sense of humor has come about of a need to dealing with these harsh realities of life. And you go towards Lebanon, where it becomes much more about putting other people down. And I always say, for example, in Lebanon, that whole idea of self-deprecating humor doesn't exist. So if you try to make a self-deprecating joke and say, you know, well, I'm, I, 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 I wouldn't, you know, like to be a TV presenter because I'm looking, I'm not good looking enough, and people will just look at you and go, well, looks are not everything, right? And they might actually chip in and try to kind of help deprecate you as well. So. It's there's a huge again, and it's kind of the reason why I mentioned this in the beginning. There's a huge diversity to what you uh, uh, to how Arab sense of humor manifests itself in different parts of the Arab world. So I like to tell people that the World Cup in Qatar is going to be the biggest social experiment that we've seen in our lifetimes. You know, you have the world's biggest and drunkest sporting event happening in a tiny conservative GCC country. What are you looking out for? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, for starters, I used to visit Doha a lot and knowing that the beer can cost you up of $20, I'm not quite sure how drunk these fans are going to get. <laughs> you probably end up having shots of beer instead of, uh, uh, instead of drinking pints or bottles. But I think, you know, that the, the situation is ripe for um, hopefully very safe kind of uh, misunderstanding and humorous situations because Qatar is a very small country, right? And when it first announced that it won the World Cup, I was really worried about that because I thought, what if someone kicks the ball really hard, then somebody's going to have to go and get it from Saudi Arabia because the country is that small. Um, so there's the size issue. There's the fact that, I guess there are certain cultural and social expectations, but I'm not part of those people who see it with apprehension. I think Doha and many places in Qatar are quite internationalized as much as uh, many other countries in um, the Gulf. I think it'll mostly be about um, the intensity um, of the experience itself. Um, but potentially, I, I think, um, you know, just the sheer amount of people in a tiny confined place. Well, I guess that's that's what our nightclub is. Yeah. So <laughs> I I I'm sure it will be fine. I'm sure it will be fine. But on a on a on a serious note, I think there was a missed opportunity in hosting the World Cup in the Middle East, um, which I think it's high time that that had happened. I personally thought it would have been a much better idea to host it across several Arab countries or several countries in the Gulf where they would have been able to share the burden, but also it would have allowed uh, you know, the visiting fans to try the local food in each of these countries, right? So for example, uh, Qatar is known for Lebanese food. 
whereas Saudi Arabia is known uh, also for Lebanese food, actually. Uh, so I think it would have given visiting fans a bigger choice of Lebanese food to try. I think for me, the interesting thing to observe about Qatar, and again, I have my own reservations largely to do with pragmatic, practical, logistical issues. I think when you observe uh, the English in particular, when you observe their reactions in the media, there's this tendency with any world event or any sporting event, wherever there's an opportunity uh, to kind of become instantly totally ignorant of their own history. And I'm not even talking about, you know, distant history, very recent history, and jump on a high moral horse where they start lecturing other people is quite blatant, glaring, quite blatant. And all of a sudden, something that's supposed to be about sports then becomes a vehicle for English pundit after English pundit to sort of try to outdo each other by who's kind of uh, more judgmental, who's more moralistic, who's more this thing should have never happened in uh, in Qatar. My favorite example to give about that is, you know, in the aftermath of uh, the American and the uh, British invasion of Iraq, nobody suggested uh, with any seriousness that uh, we would have had to boycott, let's say, the London 2012 uh, Olympics. So these kind of ramming politics into uh, sports and using that kind of very high moralistic tone is only reserved uh, for other countries. It's never applied uh uh, to European countries or this instance to England. And uh, I, it's kind of, you're almost going to have two competitions. You're going to have a competition going on the field between um, different football teams. And at the same time, in England, you're going to have a competition be who's going to be, you know, the most moralistic, the more sort of, it's up to us to show the world, you know, to teach the world about gay rights and human rights, all of which are important topics, but I can't help escape how the fact that I only remember these uh, topics, uh, you know, a couple of weeks before a tournament and only when it's an opportunity to show themselves in a better light rather than the hard work that it takes to form this kind of cultural understanding. I think this is a really key trend for me that kind of gets out of uh, control every time an international sporting uh, competition, even Eurovision for that matter, happens uh, somewhere where British pundits or English pundits can kind of milk it uh, for some kind of moralistic uh, cachet. Thank you so much for your time. Before we go, it's time to talk about puppies. If you're traveling to Qatar, consider supporting one of the local animal rescue organizations that are finding homes for thousands of dogs, cats, and other animals each year. Like these beautiful Salukis or Persian Greyhounds. We brought two to Australia. Can't imagine life without Bo and Joey. Qatar Animal Welfare Society, Cause, or Paws Rescue Qatar, Second Chance Rescue, and plenty others, rescue strays from off the streets or find them wandering the desert, they feed them, they give them medical care, and support them until they find a forever home. They're always in need of financial support, so even if you're not going, consider sending them a donation. And if you have space in your home and heart to help relocate them to your country, get in touch. I've posted some links along with this episode. Next time on A Controversial Podcast. People need to know there's a very reductionist implication that queer people didn't exist until this pressure was applied on us because we're hosting the World Cup. People were always here. There's always been a local queer culture, but it's not similar to what you see in Western countries. I staged my protest 
on the main road outside the National Museum of Qatar. We had the luxury of leaving Qatar the same day. Now that the whole world is looking at my country, we have the chance to bring global visibility to my community, having the LGBTQ plus love that they want us to hide on proud display.